1: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of fight back from the week that was. We started the week on family day Monday with a conversation about long term care. That was the day visits resumed for people who are double vaccinated against COVID 19. And there seems to be a growing appreciation that nursing home residents should be allowed to make their own decisions, even if they involve some risk. This is all happening in the context of easing restrictions as politicians and public health experts say we must shift to living with COVID-19. Libby was joined by our Monday Zoomer squad to discuss Bill Van Gorder is Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, Peter Mugrich is Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, and David Kravitz is Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media.
2: Well, I think that it's um, a mixture of this is what we need to do because we can do it now because the uh, uh, caseloads and the... uh, Uh, infection rates, et cetera, are are moving in the right direction or have moved in the right direction. So it's a mixture of that, but it's also a mixture of um, we really don't think we can micromanage this anymore. Um, It's up to you guys to figure out what you want to do, and we're recognizing that. It's belated, but I think it is, we've talked for weeks and weeks here about how this is moving in the direction of coming on the shoulders of each individual and the absoluteness, if you will, of what the government uh, authorities say is the case, uh, that has been eroding and eroding and eroding, and it's sort of finding its way to where it was, uh, I think, always meant to, to be.
3: Peter, what do you think?
2: Well, um, what year are we in now? We're, we're in the second year in a bit of lockdowns and restrictions and you know, um, turning visitors to, to long-term care homes away at the door, limiting the number of family members who can visit. And I just think that it's taken its toll on the residents especially, but also on families. And it's it's just it's time we moved on. You know, like um like the the goal of stopping the spread might um sort of be secondary to the mental health of the families and the and the and the youth overall health of the patients and, and i think we've lost that over the two years and uh we need to get back to that
3: bill um do you think uh, zoomers or older people are hesitant about things like uh, the removal of vaccine passports and coming up the removal of uh, perhaps mask mandates i think they'll be the last to go here in canada anyway i think i
4: think there is some uh uh, some hesitation, some worry, but it also, as both David and, and Peter said, it's, it's time that we learned as uh, older Canadians to manage our own health again. The government can't keep uh, making rules for us forever. Uh, this doesn't mean that uh, you'll necessarily uh, have everybody go into the long-term care uh, homes in the family and visit. It doesn't mean you won't wear a mask. Uh, most of the time it doesn't mean that you won't make sure that you're well vaccinated and ask your close friend, friends and family around you to be vaccinated but it's time to make the choices on our on our on our own and uh, and it really provides you know two other real questions now one is does the government have in place the uh, the facilities, the control, the regulations in the long-term care homes to make sure that they're as safe as they can be when we make those decisions. And we're not sure about uh, that yet. They promised it. They said it's going to happen. We're going to have to wait and see. The second uh, thing we have to remember, uh, long-term care homes can still make their own decisions about what rules they and Enforce with uh, uh, with uh, uh, people who live in their residence. So it's not automatic. You recall we went through this uh, before uh, over two years ago in the early stages of the pandemic, when there was quite a checkerboard uh, reaction from long-term care homes. So a, bit, a lot's going on in terms of the decision-making process and whether or not. Uh, seniors are going to be comfortable in uh, in the release of the regulations.
1: Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Peter Mugrich, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. And David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media. Fight Back's Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Monday also marked the end of a more than three-week occupation of downtown Ottawa by anti-mandate protesters. And on that day, there were signs that life in the nation's capital was returning to normal. But some are predicting it will take a very long time for Ottawa residents to get over the experience of the unprecedented protest-driven occupation. Robin Sears is a crisis communications consultant and former NDP strategist. He also lives in downtown Ottawa and joined Libby on Monday to share his first-hand experience. It's a great
5: relief that it's over. i Everybody was very tense. Everybody's a little more relaxed now. Um, Not being able to basically leave the house and go anywhere downtown was very frustrating. But it does leave hanging the question of how do we stop this from happening again? Uh, Because I doubt if these people are going to see this as a complete defeat and they may come back.
3: First of all, do you think uh, that for people... In Ottawa, do you think it's going to take them a kind of a long time to get over this, or do you think, uh, you know, snap the fingers and people will go back to normal?
5: Well, I think there are several things that will prolong it. One is the cleanup process. They left an incredible mess. So that's, you know, a couple of weeks, I would have thought. Then there are all the inquiries that are going to happen, which uh, are going to be necessary and they'll drag on for weeks, if not months. And then finally, I fear that we may go into a time when. Ottawa gets more permanently locked down around the parliamentary square uh, in the same fashion as the White House is or 10 Downing Street is, which will really take away some of the the joy and openness of the city, I'm afraid. But I suspect that's what they're planning to do.
3: Well, it's been happening in bits. I remember when I lived in Ottawa, probably back in the dark ages, (laughs) it was Mulroney times. I mean, you could drive right up there.
5: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it has been happening since the uh, the murder of Nathan Cirillo on the war memorial. That unlocked another wave, and I think this one will too.
3: Yeah, so it'll change. It might hasten the changes. What about... Mentally, I mean, he, I, the one thing that I could not imagine having to go through was the incessant honking for days on end. Uh, what do you think, uh, what kind of an impact do you think that will have on people who live there?
5: I think there'll be people with some, you know, a form of PTSD after this is over. I mean, it wasn't just a honking. Some people were literally frightened to leave their door because they would be threatened and taunted by some of these idiots and particularly the old, some of them were literally running out of food uh, because they couldn't get out and no one could come and visit them. So for the people who are right at ground zero and who are disabled or elderly, ill, I think this will have considerable long-term consequences. And for the rest of us, I I guess it'll just be an irritating memory soon.
3: Do you think that this is the beginning of something that will be a major factor and force in our political life?
5: I don't think there's any doubt that um, this brought to the surface some very deep divisions in society that have been, you know, bubbling up a little bit here and there over the last few years. We had those outbreaks during the election campaign last year, for example. But it cannot be permitted to occupy a city or blockade an international boundary. And I think that's part of what the Emergencies Act is about, is to try and instantly shut down those sorts of efforts. Um, And secondly, there's a very worrisome flow of American people and money into Canadian politics now. There are a lot of American license plates among the truckers, and particularly in their supply zone areas. And I think, again, the Emergencies Act will help um, track down some of that money and and shut off the flow, because you can easily see how somebody could contribute money anonymously on one of these GoFund sites or using Bitcoin, and it would flow into Canadian election campaign.
3: Robin, uh, where does this go from here? Well,
5: I really do hope that some people in civil society, former politicians, business union, church leaders, do try to form some process of dialogue across the divide that's been created Uh, because if we let this fester and we let the anger and the the divisions that this has created, it, it is going to go in a very predictable downward spiral. We only need to look to the south to see what happens. So if the politicians won't step up to play a healing role, I hope other leaders in society will.
1: Robin Sears is a crisis communications consultant and former NDP strategist. He was in conversation with Libby on Family Day Monday. You're listening to the best of fight back on Zoomer radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, the Federal Emergencies Act has come and gone. Our strategy panelists debate whether it was necessary.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on
1: Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. When Libby was joined by our strategy panel on Tuesday, MPs in the House of Commons had just passed the Emergencies Act amid a lot of criticism and charges of government overreach. The act was passed a week after it was invoked by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and after the occupation had come down, largely on the strength of the powers within the act. With their takes on how it all went down, here are Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister, John Capobianco, Conservative Strategist and Senior Vice President, Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village.
3: I think the emergency act continues to be
1: a, um, an, an, an ongoing issue in terms of how the first time it's ever been invoked, everyone's keeping an eye on how it's being used. And the fact that, I mean, again, it's hard to declare an end to an emergency, but just the fact that it's getting extended
3: on a daily basis, it seems, um, as circumstances warrant, um, is still
1: something of a concern to me because, um, you know, I was of the opinion that it it wasn't necessarily a national emergency that we were responding to. We were certainly responding to a serious situation in Ontario, but whether we needed uh, that act to be invoked is a question, and its
3: ongoing use continues to be a question as well. Uh John, what do you think? Well, yeah, I think you know both issues have equal importance. I
2: think one, sort of on an international scale, obviously, one on the domestic scale. I think, uh, um, like Karen's point on on the on the Emergencies Act, I think, is, is quite valid with respect to that. The, there's no no, you know, no reason for, um, or I should say, there's a reason for people being so divided about it, right? There's some that obviously say that it's overreach, but I think the people of Ottawa right now. Libby are quite happy that whatever it took it, it worked and it got people out of Ottawa and I've seen pictures I think all of us have been riveted to the TV all weekend and in the pictures we saw coming out of Ottawa yesterday with the streets being cleaned and the trucks gone and uh, and you know, just, it just it's probably just a delight for, for Ottawa residents who probably think, you know, what if it took the emergency act, then so be it. I think that the longer term implications, I think, are going to be more in question with respect to to why we did this. And we've got a couple lawsuits, not least of which from the Civil Liberties Association, and then I think you know the Premier of Alberta's, yeah. the uh, Government of Alberta is going to challenge this. So that is going to have some level of interest going forward. Um, but there is the debate now to say, okay, well, look, okay, it's done now. It's over with. Do we still need this? And, and maybe it was symbolic to have it passed uh, yesterday uh, by virtue of just having, having it stamped. you know, the Senate's going to be debating it, but you, know, do you, do you do you make this thing a little bit shorter than when it's supposed to be? So I think that's a debate that people are going to be looking at over the next little while.
3: Uh, Charles Souza, there's been a lot of criticism of the Prime Minister saying that he is dividing people rather than bringing them together. And yesterday in his comments, he doubled down on that. What do you think of that?
6: Yeah, I mean, he is uh, being criticized for what would seem to be, I don't know, putting gas on the the fire, so to speak, but the Measures Act, the War Measures Act, that's severe. This is not what this is. This is the Emergencies Act, which was intended because uh, the War Measures Act was so severe. This does not impede on the Chartered Rights and Freedoms. There is some protection still being made for the public and us, because we're not in that situation. Um, It's... It's about going after the money and following the money and ensuring that these initiatives, these blockades, these occupations, this notion of overthrowing the government, uh, putting other people at risk, does not get repeated and ensures that those that are breaking the law are brought to justice effectively. Because what you don't want is these individuals to feel like, hey, this is our right and we're going to continue to do so. It's not their right because they're infringing upon our rights yeah, and the but, emergency measures act. Uh, this emergency act enables the government to take the appropriate measures alongside other levels of government and, if, and, and the police to ensure that uh, uh, the, the, you know, within the short period of time that you're going to have to stop this from taking place. And it's unfortunate because these individuals, people that are there protesting, the majority of them are people that are frustrated. They're just looking for leadership and people to say, listen, we get it. You're not happy. We're not happy. A lot of people are taking vaccines. You don't believe in them. You don't want to take them. We get it. But we have to stick to this. We have to stay together. We'll get through this effectively, and then we'll be back to normal. He, Instead of making and planning to brush like anybody who's an anti-vaxxer is somehow a Nazi, that. That correlation is really tough for those people that I know personally who are anti vaxxers. Hey, I take offense to that. That's not who I am. Mm-hmm. And that part is very
4: unfortunate.
1: Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister, John Capobianco, Conservative Strategist and Senior Vice President, Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard Highroad, and Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. The day after this conversation, the Prime Minister announced that the Emergencies Act would be revoked since the existing laws, he said, are sufficient to deal with any potential future threats. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Earlier this month, the Trudeau Liberals announced they are increasing immigration targets for 2022, hoping to accept almost 432,000 newcomers. The move is widely lauded given the rampant labor shortages and various refugee crises around the world. At the same time, Canada already has an immigration backlog of 1.8 million, mostly because of the pandemic. Libby was joined by a panel of stakeholders to discuss the disconnect. Syed Hussain is executive director of Migrant Workers Alliance for Change. Deepak Talwar is in the midst of the immigration process, living and working in Saskatoon. And Hart Kaminker is a Toronto-based immigration lawyer. The
4: backlog grew very much under the pandemic because a lot of a lot of processing was paper processing. So with paper processing uh, and with social distancing and everything else that came with the pandemic, the processing of those types of applications slowed down considerably. And this led to a growing backlog. And I think there's also the issue of, you know, people, you know, I stopped I guess, losing out on the global race for talent. So we don't want people applying to Canada and think they're going to wait years and years, as some have, unfortunately. And I guess as, as one of your guests um uh, this afternoon seems to be in that position, uh, because if people think it's going to take a long time in Canada, they're going to choose elsewhere and we're going to lose out on important talent that we need.
3: Well, yeah, I think uh, they more than think it's going to take a long time. Deepak Talwar, tell us a bit of your story. You started your process in 2015. Uh, What kind of uh, immigration class were you coming in on and what's happened? I
7: started my immigration process in May 2015 when I made an exploratory visit to Saskatoon to explore business opportunities. So I applied for that, and I landed in Canada in July 2017, and started my business. I applied for my uh, PR paper-based application on 24th of October 2019, okay. and I was issued an acknowledgement of receipt on 23rd of January, and then there was a biometric instructions letter for my daughter who lives in who was studying in US at that time. It was on 29 January 2020 and which was completed on 12th February 2020. and there was total silence after that. And now, on 31st of December 2021, I get additional document requests, and I provided these documents on 28th January 2022, and I am still waiting for
3: them.G uh, Syed Hassan, you mm-hmm. have a, a different perspective on this. You represent migrants.:
8: the so-called 1.8 million backlog that's about half a million permanent resident applications and the others are study permit and work permit applications uh that doesn't include refugee processing um so and it's important to distinguish between them because then when you talk about the 432,000 those are permanent residents and all many if not all of them will probably be selected from that backlog of half a million so it's not actually on top of uh is uh it's one of the mechanisms through which that's going to be processed. The vast majority of people that come into the country, that's why half a million of the 1.8 are permanent residents, but the other 1.3 million are temporary permits. And it's important to understand that the vast majority of people who come to Canada are on temporary permits. labour shortage is not being filled by immigrants. It's being filled by temporary workers who are in exploitable conditions. These are people who can't speak up when they're mistreated at work, people who can't get access to healthcare, people who can't even have their families visit them, who can't leave the country if they're undocumented, who have no path to permanent residency. So they're not in the backlog. They just can't apply because the immigration rules keep most people permanently temporary. It's important to understand that without permanent resident status, you really don't have a mechanism to access rights. The Canadian government has created this vast group of second-class citizens Uh, who come here, work here for a few years, can't get their permanent residency and leave. You know, it's not COVID that's causing this. It's a question of, uh, political priority and you're stealing Paul to, you know, feed Peter. And it's this moving people around. But the vast majority of people aren't in the backlog. They simply can't apply.
1: Syed Hussain, executive director of Migrant Workers Alliance for Change, Deepak Talwar, in the midst of the immigration process, living in Saskatoon, and Hart Kaminker, Toronto-based immigration lawyer. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come: what you had to say about the week that was, and the Fight Back knockout call of the week.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane
1: Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics, and we also rely on you for your valued opinions. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Frank in Toronto called with his thoughts after the Ottawa occupation was over, and while the Emergencies Act was still in effect.
2: The pros and cons of the government's imposition of this War Measures Act
1: uh, emergency measures down the
2: road uh, on on a regional basis. Like for example, I can see the people and residents and businesses of Ottawa, with a current class action lawsuit going forward. If that lawsuit is su- successful, as I understand, they're suing for millions of dollars. Uh, that's actually measures as a success uh, on behalf of the residents uh, and businesses of of uh, Ottawa that have been adversely infect- affected by this uh, uh, blockade in Ottawa. So. I think you're going to have both positive and negative feedback down the road. And I think that the, uh, the Canadian government will be judged merely on a, on a regional basis, not entirely on a Canadian basis. on who benefited and who didn't benefit?
1: Ruth in North York called about Doug Ford's plan to remove the annual license plate fees.
4: This has really gotten to me already from Mr. Ford. And I say that with reservation. This is Folly. Aren't our taxes going up by this amount? Are we that ready to be bought? Shame on us. Shame on us if we so. I will not... I am so aggravated over this, you have no idea already what he's done here. I will not wait... I will not vote for this man, especially at looking at how he set out of what was going on in Ottawa. That's all I really want to say. I'm, I'm
0: really aggravated over this. And now... Fight Back's Knockout
1: Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Kathy in Niagara, who phoned about needing perspective when it comes to freedom, pointing to the concerns of anti vaccine mandate protesters in Canada versus the people of Ukraine, who've had war waged on them by Vladimir Putin.
3: I'm just thinking that with all that's, that's gone on in Canada, it's a joke when you see what's going on in Ukraine. We take democracy for granted. See how fast somebody can come in and take over? We've got to be careful. This is ridiculous, uh, uh, complaining about having to be shut down for uh, a couple of years. What about the people that had the blitz in, in England? You didn't see them running around crying that they were sick and tired of being bombed every night.
1: That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fight Back Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416. 416- three six seven nine six three six i'm jane brown join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of fight back
0: the best of fight back is produced by jane brown justin Eacock, and zeev Paddy, with technical production by kelly robotham executive producer moses Nimer.